You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 367. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Hey son, hey son! See you, Stock! Hello! <laughs> How are you guys? Did you miss me? Did you miss yes. me? Yes, of course we did. We did. Yes. Of course. I was <laughs> pissed off and off pissed. Oh, what? <laughs> no, no, no. I was not off. I was not, neither pissed off or off pissed. I, I, <laughs> I am not that uh, much of an athlete, but I was skiing. I kept to the, you know, the children's slopes because mm-hmm. that's where I belong nowadays, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Better to be safe. <laughs> Better to be safe, yes, yes. And of course, after ski is always after ski. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never been there. I've never been there. And I want to! You've Now never skied I, at all? I've never. So you haven't you haven't listened to the, to the episode then? Yes, I have. And I remember now you did mention it. Yes. So. Okay. <laughs> so this is for people who missed the last episode. Andras has never gone skiing. No, no, no. Yeah. But, But you, do, you do have ski slopes in Hungary. You must have. No? No. No. You know what okay. the highest point of Hungary is? Five meters. It's at no <laughs> a little bit higher than that, but not much not by much. <laughs> it's uh, yes. it's a thousand fourteen meters above okay. sea level. That's so not that's, much. That's, that's all. Uh, sometimes sometimes there is snow on top of, of uh, the little hills as well, but uh, not this winter, I'm afraid. Okay. We haven't seen much okay. snow. Not a great country for skiing then. Nope. Nope. <laughs> but speaking of things that have been mentioned on the show before and that were mentioned on the last episode, I'd like to brag about something. <laughs> that oh, go ahead. Babel Winkler Babel. from Skeptical Science contacted me the other day to let us know that a couple of people joined their translation teams after hearing about the call for contributors on this show. Fantastic. Good. So we're doing great work here. Imagine that. We're doing something good. Yeah, we we giving something to the community, and and That's I great. I feel so happy about that. That's great. By the way, Babel plays a very important role in in maintaining the the website of Skeptical Science and coordinating the translation projects, like uh, Cranky Uncle, the Debunking Handbook, and there's lots of them as well. So if anyone feels like dedicating their time to something extraordinary. I mean, both by importance and the amount of work you can put in it. <laughs> uh, do get in touch with the team. We'll share the link again, but you can also find Babel on Twitter and Facebook. And if you go on Twitter and find our latest tweet promoting episode 366, the former episode, you'll find her replying to it so you can get in touch with her directly on Twitter. So right. just just do it. Get in touch somehow and she'll take it from there. And and if you want to hear more about the project, then listen to episode 313 of the ESP. Um, that is this podcast uh, for her interview. <laughs> yeah, with, that's uh, great. With and Babel. also... Also, I know that, from example, uh, that you can team up and help out, exactly. help each other. You don't have to do all the work yourself. I know for the Cranky Uncle game in Sweden, yeah. there was one lead, but uh, she had help from others, and uh, that helps a lot, and it decreases the workload. Yep. Yeah, they say that for this to work properly, a team of like three or four people at least yeah. is best to have. So, yeah. yeah And you that. probably should have one who takes the lead, who coordinates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's always there's always a need for someone to take the lead. Otherwise, <laughs> it's it's going to be um, uncoordinated yeah. and it's ne- it's never good. Um mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Something that's also really cool is that you can still nominate people for the John Maddox Prize, and that's actually open still until May the first. <laughs> mm, yeah, good. We've got good, two good. two months to nominate someone. Exactly. Winner will yeah. be announced in October, so yeah, we'll put the long- links to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If the John Maddox Prize had been available in the 1600s. I think we can name a couple of <laughs> couple of people who would have been nominated or could have been nominated, right? Right, absolutely. <laughs> Because we should remind people that the John Maddox Prize is for science communicators, but specifically for people who have sort of suffered in the quest of communicating science by being harassed or even sued sometimes. So that's, exactly. that's the focus. And that happens in the that happened in the 1600s as well. 
quite is often that, quite uh, often right. okay yeah 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 and and that is what i'd like to talk about a little bit at the beginning of the show which is usually the part that we call twish or this week in skeptical history all right so the end of this week the 5th of march marks the 407th anniversary of uh, one of the milestones in what has been referred to in retrospect as the Galileo affair. So here is our person of interest when it comes <laughs> to the potential John Maddox Prize in the 1600s. Yeah. And uh, that event that we're commemorating now was the publication of a new edition of the decree of the Holy Congregation for the Index. And Pontus, your personal favorite is the different kinds of holy congregations. Uh, <laughs> namely the Inquisition, right? Yes. So um, the but Inquisition, the, the Congregation is. for the Doctrine of the Faith, was that? And the the long title of the index was, and I'm I'm helping you with this. Okay. Was the Index Librorum Prohibitorum? Okay, that's a list of uh, prohibited uh, books, right? Exactly. Yeah. Banned by decree by His Holiness and the Holy See. Hmm. But th- those that was based on recommendations of the the father theologians and considerations of the Inquisition as well. So this was very important. And in this case, it was Pope Paul V in the name of whom the decree was published. And the main addition to the list was the works of the so-called uh, Pythagoreans, more specifically Nicolaus Copernicus, ah. whose book on the revolutions of heavenly spheres was considered... A revolution by the, the learning of the not a revolution. No, no, it was considered a dangerously opposing uh, list of ideas to the scripture, and how Galilei was dragged into this is the way he tried to convince people that what Copernicus wrote about, specifically the the Earth moving around the a stationary sun, was the actual truth and not just some abstract mathematical thought that everyone was treating it like. Yeah. But the interesting thing is by then, he had actually gathered a lot of empirical evidence that there are lots of objects in the sky that orbit the uh, other heavenly bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I have to mention as well that we are about 30 years after the calendar reform, which was using things <laughs> based on the Copernican ideas. So ah. the calculations that they use were using the Copernican Never theory. let a good calculation get in the way of religion. <laughs> yes, never, never. Never. Don't do that. Religion wins every time. And just to mention something about those objects in the sky that orbit other heavenly bodies, the greatest example was what Galilei called the Medici planets orbiting the planet Jupiter. Ah. And that is, and why I really wanted to mention this, is because tonight, as of this recording, which is the the 1st of March, that's something you can see with the smallest telescope or even a binocular in the evening sky. If you go outside tonight, if you have clear skies where you live, do it and you'll see a beautiful conjunction of Venus and Jupiter looking west. They're they're standing so close to each other. Mm. They are they are getting further away as the time progresses over the week. But tonight you'll see bright spots beautifully lining up and if you see it through even a minimal magnification, let's say a, a binocular, you'll see even smaller bright spots that are lining up, but in a in a beautiful line on the sides of Jupiter. Have the you Galilean seen that? planets, right? The Gla- Galilean planets. And now they are called Galilean moons, but they were originally called the Medici planets. Oh, the Medici planets. Yes, the Medici right. planets, because Ma- the Medici family of Tuscany, they were the rulers of Tuscany. They were the patrons of Galileo Galilei. Mm. So obviously he named them after, after them. Sponsored, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was the first one to to see that and report on that and drew about his observations. He was it was amazing. But he also saw the fact that Venus, also protagonist of today's happenings, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. uh, Venus has also faces just like the Moon. So that means that occasionally we see it from the side, from where the the sunlight comes. So it's not flat, then? First of all, it's not flat. Secondly, (laughs) we are both orbiting the same star. (laughs) 
Yeah, this is why it has phases. So yeah, Galileo was actually right, but he should not have been arguing with those powerful people. Because the infamous Roberto Bellarmino, that probably sounds familiar to many, because he was the most influential person of the Counter-Reformation, and by the way, mostly responsible to what happened to Giordano Bruno, he decided to invite him to Rome and order him to shut the fuck up. because, Because he could get hurt. Because he, he was causing too much confusion with his sciencey stuff and just pesky science was running around arguing for Copernicus to be right. So he made Galileo promise he would drop it, and he actually did for a while at least. <laughs> Later he couldn't shut up, and uh, he wrote very controversial books, including the dialogue which caused him a lot of trouble and eventually led him to be banned completely. So, yeah, his his works later made it to the index as well, which existed, by the way, until 1966. <laughs> well, with major changes through the <laughs> centuries, but still, until 19-fucking-66. It's, it's ridiculous. So, the 5th of March marks the anniversary of the 1616 publication of, and I'm going to say the long title now, the decree of the Holy Congregation of the Most Illustrious Lord Cardinals, especially charged by His Holiness Pope Paul V and by the Holy Apostolic See with the index of books and their licensing, prohibition, correction and printing in all of Christendom. Also known as the index. <laughs> they must have confused the title of the thing with what you read on the back of the book. Well, the actual text of the edition... I mean, it's, it, it was basically an addendum to the already existing index. But <laughs> yeah, it wasn't much longer than the title itself. So mm. it was just a list of list of, <laughs> of those works, including The Revolutions of Heavenly Spheres by Nicolaus Copernicus. Yeah. All right. So uh, I, I kind of have the feeling that we should probably deal a little bit more with the, the Catholic Church. So I hope that you have something to poke the Pope for, Pontus. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So let's move ahead about 400 years to some more papal shenanigans. Uh, So here's the latest news on the so-called trial of the century. Mm. I won't go into the details of the trial of the century uh, because I've talked about this so many times. But basically, Cardinal Betchew is the first ever sitting cardinal, cardinal who've been charged in court at least in modern times, that is. Uh, and the charges are multi-million financial shenanigans and embezzlement. That's all you need to know for, for the time being. <laughs> so what's new with this this week? Well, in a democratic country, you often split the power in three, the, the governing power in three. You have the legislative body, which writes the laws, the executive body, that does the thing, and the judicial body, who oversees the whole thing. So you have a parliament, a government, and a high court, basically. Mm-hmm. That's a good model. It's not always the same, but, but it's, a, it's a good system. The government executes what's decided in the parliament and is answerable to the parliament. And the high court, or the supreme court in some cases, depending on what you call it, interprets the laws and makes sure that both parliament and government follow the constitution or the foundational laws. So you have a power of three there that balances Not so in the Vatican. The Vatican is not a democracy. Pope Francis has all of these roles. He leads the governing departments, or dicasteries, as they call it there. He issues the laws. He is the top judicial instance as well. And de facto, he is actually the Supreme Court. So the basic problem is that both the prosecution and the defense in this trial that we're talking about is ultimately answerable to Frankie. So he and he is also the one who writes the laws, as I said. And now he has directly interfered with this trial. On the 7th of February, he gave Betchu, which is the main defendant, a private audience with no record of it at all of what was said or what was handled in that meeting. So basically, you can say that the head of the Supreme Court had a secret meeting with what could be the worst villain of the land. We don't know yet because he hasn't been sentenced, but it could be that. And in any decent country, this is grounds for a mistrial. You you can't do that. But not so in the Vatican, because Frankie is, as I've said before, a dictator and he does whatever he wants to. 
So we don't know what happened in this meeting, but a week later, the judge of the trial came out and said that the trial cannot be finished by the middle of this year, as was expected. Instead, he hopes to wrap it up before the end of the year. I guess provided that Frankie stays out of the whole thing and doesn't interfere again. So pretty interesting developments there. And I, you know, we've been following this trial since forever. I wonder if we will ever see the finish of it. (laughs) Okay, so that's one thing. Well, Frankie is, as I said, a dictator and everybody needs to follow his word. But what if they don't? The thing is, it, when it comes to global matters in the Catholic Church, he has no practical way to enforce his biddings, really. Not, not, not real power. Mm. I have mentioned that the German Catholic Church has for some time now had a special so-called synodal path going. So <laughs> what is a synodal path? Well, it's something that started already in 2019 and is, is expected to go on for several years still. What it is, is an ongoing discussion about how and what the German Catholic Church will do and what policies they will promote. And Franke is not pleased with this. There are open discussions in Germany uh, about allowing same-sex marriages and even marriage for priests and other things that are controversial. So, well, good on them. Go Germans, I think. (laughs) But but, uh, Franke isn't so happy. So this synod, and and a synod, maybe I should explain, it's just a fancy name for a meeting, a meeting of bishops. So this synod is organizing itself as they see fit within Germany. And as we record this, 62 German bishops are meeting in Dresden, which is a city in, in Germany. They have decided that they will create a, quote, synodal council, end quote, to lead the work ahead, because they're going to do this for for a few years still, they're, they're, they're just getting started. It's just that Frankie has let them know very clearly that they are not allowed to create a synodal council for some reason. I don't know why. On 27th of February, though, the president of the synodal meeting, Bishop Georg Betzing of Limburg. Please correct me, Annika, if I, if I <laughs> Completely butcher correct. it too much. Uh, thank you. Well, anyway, this bishop... He publicly said that they appreciate the advice from Frankie, but they're going to do it anyway, against Frankie's veto. And the question is then, what is Francis going to do about this? We don't know, but I mean, it's not like he can call the police. There's nothing he really can do short of excommunication, but he can't really excum- excommunicate all bishops of Germany. That would be very extreme. But It may come to something like that because some people are even speculating that the German bishops are on their way towards something that could become a second Protestant movement in full break with the Vatican. I would say that's pretty unlikely and it won't happen tomorrow. But um, what we can see is that still, after almost exactly 10 years in power, Frankie apparently still has trouble keeping his flock together. (laughs) (laughs) And as he's getting older, he's probably going to see even more challenging situations. Yeah, yeah, well, okay, thank you very much for that, Pontus. And I think we should probably leave the Catholic Church behind for a while (laughs) and talk about other stuff because there's a lot going on in Europe and indeed the world. I'd like to start with something of an international scope. And that is a paranormal challenge that was a call for the demonstration of paranormal abilities by an American organization, the Center for Inquiry. And they have this group that was founded in 2000 called the Center for Inquiry Investigations Group. And they have been offering a prize of 250,000 American dollars to anyone who can demonstrate under their experimental conditions and in mutually agreed setup that uh, they hold some kind of paranormal ability. And why I'm mentioning this is because it's an international call, so it's not restricted only to the United States. So if we have any mediums or psychics out there, you can apply. 
Yes, you can. G Mantadown, who's uh, one of the founders of uh, the CFIIG, that is the, the, the Center for Inquiry Investigations Groups. So G Mantadown says that it's they receive about 100 applications on a yearly basis, but not many of them even get to the second round because the problem is that they have to outline every single thing that they do, they are capable of, Plus, they have to agree to the terms of experimenting on them and and experimentally trying to assess whether the abilities are genuine. But that stage has never been passed before. Uh, (laughs) This is why they thought that it might be because of the prize not being attractive enough. So they doubled that prize. So Mm. now, as of the end of February this year, the prize has gone up to $500,000. So half a million dollars to anyone who can demonstrate, clearly demonstrate in a scientific setup that they have abilities beyond what we know. You have to bear in mind that science, and this is what Underdown says as well, and I quote, science recognizes neither the paranormal nor the supernatural. Anyone with the ability to provably demonstrate why it should would have certainly earned the prize by now. Mm. So they feel like it's pretty safe in the bank, that amount of money. Uh, Nobody will be able to claim it, but they are more than happy to give it a go. (laughs) Yeah, it's not fake. They will give the money if somebody can actually prove that they are psychic or can see through walls or whatever, fly, I don't know. Yeah. And there is a history to this, of course. We we all heard of the James Randi Educational Foundation's Million Dollar Challenge, but it hasn't been around for for since uh, 2016. And uh, there are other organizations all across Europe that offer that. I believe there is an Australian Paranormal Prize as well. I think so, yeah. But nobody has ever been given that. And it's not because it's not there. It's not because it's not fake, as Ponto says. It's not fake. It's real. But you have to prove it in experimental conditions. Yeah, You have to adhere to the rules. So, yeah. Yeah, well, so the reason that you can't prove it is because it's fake, right? Yes. As, as far as we know. I mean, unless they prove it. I mean, the, the ability. But it, is, but it is basically fake. It can't, you can't, it can't be done. And other things are fake as well. I talked in episode 359 about the false rumor uh, that was spreading online and still is spreading online about how Swedish authorities are kidnapping Muslim babies and selling them as sex slaves, basically. There are variations of the rumor, but that's basically it. And in that episode, I mentioned a woman who appeared in an Egyptian YouTube channel and described this, and that was the start of this being really internationally a conspiracy theory that was growing. She is not alone in doing this. She had help, I've learned recently. There was a man, there is a man called Ali Al-Sadini, something like that. He was involved in this. There was a long dispute with the authorities. He was living in Sweden. He's still living in Sweden. But he had a dispute with the authorities regarding the family and their ability, or rather inability, for different reasons, to care for their own children. And it ended up with the children being removed from the family because the authorities didn't think that they were safe uh, in this family. Al-Sadini, of course, became very distressed by this. And he became one of the people who started the rumors that the Swedish government is kidnapping children because he felt that was what had happened to him. And he met up with that woman. Uh, I don't know her name, but I mentioned her previously, who was on this Egyptian YouTube channel. And he was on that YouTube channel as well in that interview. Together, they started an organization and they demonstrated in public at the central square in Stockholm. Al-Sadani even went so far as to hunger strike for 10 days. Wow. And it, so, so this is a tragic story for, from several points of view. Of course, there's a tragic family behind it. It's the tragedy. He, of course, is very distressed and, and traumatized by losing his children. But what has happened now this week is that Al-Sadani has come forward and says now that he regrets the whole thing. This is almost two years from when his children was removed from him. He was desperate, he says, and overcome with grief, and he says he just couldn't accept that he had lost his children. 
As a parent, I can understand that. But of course, that doesn't justify what happens. But it's sort of understandable. It would be traumatizing for anyone. And he says now that the whole thing very quickly got out of hand. And this movement was created that still keeps spreading this misinformation. And uh, the fact that Al-Sadani now has come out to say that he regret what happened will, of course, not change anything. So that's what we know from from experience. Once the cat is out of the bag, there's no going back. Most Mm -hmm. likely he will now be called out by the conspiracy theorists for being the turncoat or a fake or whatever. It's not going to end well. But uh, a little bit more background on how that rumor got started. And now we're going to live with that forever, I think. But interesting, yeah. Mm. And probably this, this is why we need those platforms where the disinformation is being spread to jump in and, and step in and, and try to do something about that and, and stop the propagation of these ideas hmm. before they actually reach the audience and cause the harm that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually something that worked not so well in the UK <laughs> because um, there have been Google ads um I can pretty much say targeted at pregnant people for anti-abortion groups. Mm. What? Yes. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. And that's something like, yeah, when I read that, I was just really like, what? <laughs> well, as we know, pretty much everyone that goes through a certain procedure can um, show ads on Google. And they, yeah. because they're ads, they come on top. So if you look for, in this example, they said NHS and pregnancy or NHS and abortion or other search terms they had were NHS abortion advice, confidential abortion support or pregnant teenager help. The last one, of course, is a group that is very vulnerable. And uh, as we know from other searches, ads always come on top, right? Yeah. Yeah. In an analysis this month, 117 out of 251 adverts shown by Google UK were analyzed. And I said 117 out of 251 were from groups opposed to abortion. And that in itself is, is pretty bad. But the thing is, you probably, you guys probably know that, but I don't know if every one of our listeners knows that. They look like normal, normal search results, but they have a little ad. So like the design is minimally different. There's a little sign of saying ad in front of the link. But if you're in a in a rush, then you will notice it. Yeah, I, I do it all the time. Me I, too. Uh, Me too. I, I click on the ads once every week. I cl- oh, fuck, I clicked yes. on the ad. I just didn't mean to, but it's very easy to do. <laughs> yeah, because your subconsciousness yeah, is probably like, like your brain can see the ad, but, but your subconsciousness is just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I need to get to this link. And yeah, you, you just don't, don't notice it. Yeah. And yeah, it's really problematic. If a pregnant teenager, for example, is looking for help and then they click the link and then the website says, oh, this is a safe and confidential place. And then they are against abortions. That's really problematic. For example, one of the helplines was co-launched by Christian Concern, and that's a right-wing evangelical organization, and they want abortions to be banned. The helplines trustees include someone called Regan King, and he's a pastor. And he has described abortion as following, and I quote, because it's for to me pretty funny how he said it. Disgusting, disturbing, grim, gruesome, horrifying, shocking, terrible, vile. So all in like word, yeah. dot, word, dot. He, he didn't bother to say and or comma or anything. And he also said it's the new slave trade, which is so absurd. But yeah, this is the people that funded, partly funded uh, one of these helplines. And um, these ads also seem to work because they had a spike in clients. In 2022, they had 2,000 clients. And in 2021, they had 500. So you can see it is working. Google, of course, says, well, we are doing a good job at like sifting through. And a lot of the helplines say that they are accredited by NHS. But still, if, if their goal is eventually to forbid and prohibit abortion, then that's still not something that could up, should up come up as the first hit. 
So mm. this is very problematic and people just say, well, okay, we probably can't force Google, but, but Google themselves should also be interested in people believing that they are, the information they get through Google is trustworthy. We, we know, yes, we all need to be skeptical, of course, but we still probably need more transparency. So a bit more obviously that it's an ad or that they obviously state we, we are biased, <laughs> like on the first mm. page, so to say, on the hit page. But yeah, that's uh, that's uh, bad news from, from UK. <laughs> yeah, well, sticking with the UK and, um, well, the last two items were loosely connected to children and the safety of children. There are currently 97 organizations in the United Kingdom that deal with some aspects or, or, not, or other of children rights and try to implement things including the implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and uh, there was a report just published a couple of days ago from back in 2022 as to how that implementation is going well I'd like to point out one thing about that well obviously there are lots of different aspects but I'd like to focus on the religious aspect because surprisingly to me at least there are still in the UK state schools that are required by law for their children to take part day on a daily basis in acts of collective worship in the schools of England Wales and Northern Ireland Wow. And I looked up the actual background to this, and there is something that, that's called the School Standards and Framework Act 1998. And section 70 of that says that each pupil in attendance at a community, foundation, or voluntary school shall, on each school day, take part in an act of collective worship. So it's real, people. Wow. wow. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It means that it basically spits in the eye of the Convention on the Rights of Child, dated from 1989 uh, of the UN Assembly, the General Assembly. Yeah. That is ridiculous. So it's understandable that these 97 organizations raise a flag there and say that we should do something about that. So we would like to force the UK government to put an end to this compulsory collective worship thing. Yes, it's it's just going against basic human rights. Th there is something that has to be said about this as well. It refers to children, students under the age of 16. Those above 16 are free to opt out, but under 16s cannot. They don't have the option to do that. They cannot withdraw themselves. They have to be withdrawn by their parents. By law. That means that a 14-year-old cannot decide not to go to worship. That is <laughs> that is just nonsensical. Yeah. Okay? So yes, we join Humanist UK and all the 96 other organizations that put together this collective report on civil society and how the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child are implemented. Yeah. Not well. So the UK government has to do something about it. And the Humanist UK also issued a call for parents to do something about it and to petition the government to act on this. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, shocking, really. Mm -hmm. It is. <laughs> All right. So I believe I've mentioned before how some companies offer you blood tests that for a fairly high fee gives you 30 or 40 or even 50 results about all kinds of values in your blood. The main one is called FunMed in Sweden. It's not as fun as it sounds. Of course, fun it stands for functional medicine, which is, I think, mm -hmm. just a buzzword. But anyway. But then, of course, what happens when you have received these 40 or 50 results? They will, of course, tell you that some of all the values are not quite optimal, even though you feel perfectly healthy. Because not all levels of everything in your body is 100% average all the time and optimal. If you do enough tests, you always find something that's a little bit off. But selling unnecessary tests to healthy people is uh, the new business, I guess. <laughs> and the reason this is not useful is that it can create unnecessary stress and fear 
with the so-called patients. You know, you're not even sick and still you're a patient. And it also puts a lot of pressure on the healthcare system because it gets flooded by people that insists that there's something wrong with them, even if it's not. Worst case, if they're told by the healthcare system that there's nothing wrong, nothing to be worried about, they will turn to alternative so-called medicine or scam because they never hesitate to sell uh, treatments or to perfectly healthy people. And that in turn feeds the idea that the public health care system cannot be trusted because here's this uh, homeopath that tells me I can be treated. So why didn't they treat me at the public health care system? Of course, if you can make money by selling blood tests, then there are other ways to sell even more things like that. The new thing is to sell tests regarding your intestinal flora, the bacteria in our gut, in our stomach. So now several companies in Sweden are appearing from nowhere doing just that. And it has exactly the same negative effects as the blood tests. And the problem with all this is that it's so hard to criticize because these tests are done by the book, by scientifically accurate means done by doctors, professionally done. Each test is not actually, it's not pseudoscience, so it's hard to criticize. It is just a waste and and useless and unnecessary, and it creates a lot of, yeah, it collects a lot of money from people who don't need to pay for these tests, and then it creates these other effects that I described. So um, just watch out for that. Don't buy that. It's, It's a scam of sorts. There's a um, scandal happening in France right now, which mm, I don't know if I would call it a scam too, but it's definitely a scandal. Mm-hmm. And there has even been a journalist suspended. They uh, they suspended Rachid Mbaki. I hope I didn't butcher that pronunciation. He's one of the channel's longest serving hosts. And he got suspended during a suspected news planting linked to Team, and I would pronounce it Jorge, <laughs> but it's probably for us completely different. It's spelled J-O-R-G-E. They are linked to an Israeli disinformation unit. Yeah, the problem here is that apparently he was connected to that. And it was about a report about the Monaco yachting industry. In the report, it got suggested that sanctions against Russian oligarchs were damaging the yachting industry in the Mediterranean Principality in Monaco. And, well, there were doubts about the integrity of that because this team, they sell hacking and disinformation services to political and corporate clients. And we all know that disinformation is not the best. (laughs) Um, Hmm. That's really harmful, actually. And here, the leader of this unit, Tal Hanan, was filmed boasting about that he could manipulate the media to spread propaganda and that there are undercover reporters posing as potential clients. He played a video clip and an undercover reporter recognized the clip and recognized Mbaki, the presenter. Then, uh, of course, he approached the channel BFM TV and they suspended him to find out if that's actually the case, if he's connected to that or if he he was unwitting of that. Um, But it's, of course, a big problem. Yeah, we'll be interested in how that turns out and what else will come out during this inquiry. Mm. We we hear all the time about countries doing misinformation campaigns, meddling with elections mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But what we don't talk a lot about is that that creates a market for yes. groups like this, for companies who for do it for money. They don't they mm-hmm. don't even have a ideological agenda. They just spread whatever misinformation they get paid mm-hmm. to spread. And I'm sure they are getting pretty efficient and, and big yeah. and powerful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the ideas and the ideology is brought in by the one who makes the order. So yeah, the one who's paying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, all right. Something, something more lighthearted. <laughs> I, I really like this. I'm, I'm fascinated with things, creatures that are roaming the seas and can be found or cannot be found all over the world. So cryptozoology is one of my favorite areas of skepticism as well. <laughs> One of these fascinating animals that were reported in medieval texts is something that we call half-gufa. Pontus. The what? Half-gufa. <laughs> 
it's present in uh, Norse old Norse texts Mythology. like um, uh, one of them is uh, King's Mirror Konungskuskia Okay so along that line. I am old but I'm not that old that I speak fluent uh, ancient Norse <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about Spontus did you meet the dinosaurs when you were a kid <laughs> <laughs> We don't talk about the dinosaurs <laughs> Anyhow, it is, I believe, it's not the same thing as the Kraken. Okay, the Kraken <laughs> so some, I've heard of. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's something different, especially because it's it inhabits the waters of the Greenland Sea mm-hmm. instead of... Allegedly. The, the, yeah, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, now a researcher says that uh, there was a list of uh, different observations recently on uh, different uh, whale species of a behavior that is very special and it has not been seen or filmed before and that is called trap feeding when a whale opens its mouth and just waits around for fish to swim inside its mouth that's how i eat as well oh you do i just open my mouth and hope that food will come into it in hungarian (laughs) we have a saying you're waiting for the roasted dove to fly into your mouth. Exactly. Do you have that? <laughs> no, a sparrows, but it's similar. Sparrows. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So in medieval East Central Europe, it was doves that people ate. And in uh, medieval Sweden, it was sparrows. Nice. We were not so, as big mouths, mouths, yeah. mouthed as you are. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like there were times where we were much better off than you were. <laughs> Those times are over. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, so it's a special feeding technique that was potted by whales. So uh, humpback whales and bride whales in the Gulf of Thailand, the humpback whales were filmed doing that off the coast of eastern Canada. So uh, it's an interesting thing. But at Flinders University in Australia, certain Dr. John McCarthy was dealing with, uh, so he knows a lot of Norse scripts uh, from the 13th century, including the King's the aforementioned King's Mirror. And he noticed that one of the behaviors explained there by this sea creature was exactly the same thing. So that Havgufa is now considered just a common whale. Ah. So it's a myth basically busted or on the way of becoming busted. The problem is that these medieval Norse texts, they are very scattered. So there are not too many of them. Yeah, And they're not illustrated by photographs either. And so it's, it's not illustrated by photographs. But some, the illustrations that were used on later texts that, that were copies of these original texts, they were very much like a present-day whale. So mm. some Icelandic Havgufa uh, observations were illustrated. And it, it was interesting that it, it really looked like one. But it was a behavior. The, the strangeness of this was previously that it was never seen before in real life. Now we see, now we know. It's just an interesting thing. <laughs> right. And I learned a new word, half goofa. I have half never goofa. heard that. I have never heard about that before. It sounds like half loofa. Yeah, apparently it like means... This, this, uh... Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it means something along the lines of sea steamer. So that that goes very well with the idea of that being a whale as well. <laughs> because as the whale breathes out, it's, it's, it mostly spreads water water vapor out. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And for me, it just yeah. sounds like lufa, like this um, spongy thing. <laughs> half lufa. No, it's half lufa. <laughs> Completely different topic. There is a new um, history epic out in Belgium. And um, some people think it's just um, a history documentary. And others think it's propaganda. Oh, we have that too. Yeah, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I would say in, in Germany, they're like super, super, super careful to not be nationalist in any regard with that. Even in TV in Germany, we do really don't want to influence people in regards of like Germany's the best or so, you know, you know, mm. history. But yeah, this Flemish show seems to be very good as this has been well regarded. And it's about the story of Flanders. It's a spanning 38,000 years of um, the region's history. So 38,000? Yes. 38,000? So it starts with the Neanderthals? Basically. Yes. 
Wow. So it's, of course, the whole show doesn't run for 38,000 years, but it's, it's it talking be, yeah. about it. Let's do that. it in real time. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> Imagine the Age of Truman Empires show version with of Neanderthal. that. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's blockbuster TV basically, um, but with Romans and Vikings, knights and Neanderthals, trains, trenches of the First World War, and of course. I mean, is that a sequential thing, or they are ma- all several mixed together? Episode, ten part. I was just <laughs> not living <laughs> not, together. Not, no, those... it, it wasn't Neanderthals together with uh, Vikings in the trenches. Ah, okay, good, good. No, the story of Flanders is, um, as I said, ten part history series. And it has been very popular, but has been partly funded by the separatist New Flemish Alliance Party. And they want to make Flanders independent from Belgium. (laughs) So that, of course, meant that, yeah, people think it's propaganda. Not because of how the episodes are running, but more like who funded it. And what's their goal mm. behind that? So it was an epic production. They t- took three years to make. It's 50 minutes per episode and then 10 times that. They had over 700 actors, period costumes, over 100 locations, stunt horses, 200 experts, and so on. So like you can, you can think it was a really... Like um, me as a history teacher, I would probably say that's something I would love to show my students because it really brings makes history alive. But this is the point where I, as a history teacher, would also teach critical thinking and skepticism to the media you consume. Because you can always say, like, which what do they use to, to make you think this and that? And how do they what what do they say and what's problematic and stuff? And that's something that the average viewer probably won't do. Stepping back and reflect on what you just saw. They had an audience of about 1.6 million viewers, which uh, is a quarter of Belgium, of Belgium's population. Some people think it's really problematic. They have denounced the series. They said it, it costs so much and still it's, uh, it's propaganda, they say. The minister president of Flanders has said, no, this is not propaganda. Um, the NVA is the largest party in the region. Strengthening identity is part of our program. Yeah, and as I said, like opposition really renounced the series and said, hey, how would it be if we maybe spent the 2.4 million on schools? Because the parties, they say, like the party finds money for projects like a virtual museum, um, a canon of Flanders, events in Flemish culture, but they can't find money for school books or school meals. And that's something that Hannelore Gruman, <laughs> I think, is really angry about and and she really thinks it's propaganda because she said yeah it's it's well made but they always talk about us and we but who are we and that's a quote sorry um but who are we the flemish people i'm sorry but the flemish people in burgundian times didn't exist so she Hmm. thinks it's actually even identity construction historically not accurate which i can also follow if, if you would say oh yeah the german people and you talk about um uh, ancient Roman times, there were no German people <laughs> at that time. There were a lot of Germanic tribes. But in other regions of today's Germany, there were nothing that would remind us of Germany nowadays. So, um, right. yeah, it's, it's absolutely uh, yeah, constructing an identity, if you will. And yeah, there are other little things and historical events that were maybe not portrayed completely correctly, but I don't want to bore people that are not history geeks as I am. <laughs> It's really interesting to see that still history is relevant, um, but, but skepticism in regards of the media is also important. One thing that I also don't want to let out is a professor in medieval history at the University of Leuven. He said, like, propaganda is unfair, but the show has an old-fashioned view. That was Jelle mm. Hammers, and he said, it's all battle history, quote, Battles are important, but not so decisive as they have been presented. We don't see cultural history at all. Where's the art history? Where's literary history? Where are the women? <laughs> so, mm, good and question. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I remember from watching these, these documentaries, you usually see men on horses killing each other. <laughs> you mm, know, yeah. and, and then you see a king and talking to a bishop and that's about it, you know. No, that's an old view of history. That's like the history of great men. And that's something that we did in the 60s and before, but that we don't want to do anymore because we live in a democracy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I talked a lot about uh, that show now because history. <laughs> That's a, a good sentence, I know, because history. But yeah, let's let's just stay skeptical of even history documentaries and everything we consume. And uh, yeah, I'll t- stop talking about history now. <laughs> yeah, but I I, w- I will add to mm-hmm. it a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> as you should. But because it it it. it, it hits me that I'm reading at the moment a book called this I think in translation it would be called The Long History of Sweden. It is written by a Swedish guy called Jonathan Lindström mm-hmm. uh, that I've actually met. He signed the Ooh. book for me. That was nice of him. <laughs> uh, he's also one of the Enlightener of the Year awardees. Uh, not recently, it I think it was 2006 or something like that. But he's a good guy. And it hits me that his newest book the long history of Sweden is very good in that it it is about the history of the land mm-hmm. or the, the the geographical part of Europe that we now mm-hmm. call Sweden, but it's it goes back really far back. And uh, at some point, I'm still in the beginning of the book. He says, "Well, by this time the ice age came, and no humans lived in in this area anymore for a thousand years," and that. Gets you mm-hmm. think. So, so in the beginning, you read about mm-hmm. this. They found the skeleton of a woman with a bow and arrow, and was she the first <clears throat> Swedish person, the oldest Swedish person that we've ever said? Well, a thousand years later, there was nobody here. So, when people came back, it has to have been other people mm-hmm. from other tribes, and it gives you that perspective yeah. that the country awesome. is yeah. just—we are all just passing mm-hmm. through in a way. <laughs> Yeah, and that that really touched me. What you said about uh, the history being about battles and being about the leading mm-hmm. figures of a country, whereas it's much more than that. This is a challenge for me as as a tour guide because I have to talk about a lot mm-hmm. of historical events and things, but mostly I try to depict something of the the past in terms of how people lived and how people live now. And that's very difficult to come across, that kind of information. So you have to actively search and, and you, in the cases of some countries, you're facing an almost impossible task. Uh, if you want to do that, because not much is published on that. Mm. And if you have access to archaeological data or that kind of information, that makes it a little bit better, but it's still not a complete picture that you can mm-hmm. you can draw. And interesting. So the other day, after five years, I gave my first tour of my hometown. <laughs> after hey, five no, years. No, that's not true. You gave us one. I have been on one as well, a private tour. A private tour, a private tour, yes. That's true. Sorry about that. Yeah. I mean, as a professional guide, I, I, yeah, I did you, not. We didn't pay. Because of, my, right. because of my political activity, I was actually banned. Ooh, oh, really? Wow. Yes. Good so, for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, but this is what I, I put the whole um, walk around, the idea of wrapping people's head around how we know things. So where the hell do we know these pieces of information from? I was talking about a lot about, about the different sources, archaeological remains, and tried to give them a picture of what the city was like in the Middle Ages. And not just like, oh, this was done by Maria Teresa, and that was in her age and her era. and stuff. No, it's, but who cares? It's not all about queens and kings and, and everything. It's about the people. Yeah, Mm -hmm. right. Okay, so to round off the news segment here, let's leave history behind and uh, look at some current history being made, even if it's not very good history. It's time for Pontus Pokes the Politicians (laughs) again. The big poker. The big poker. In the the episode 352, that was in November last year, I reported that the new right-wing government that we have here in Sweden had scrapped the Department for the Environment and put it all under the Department of Business and Industry. In fact, they added a few other things there as well, creating what is now called a, quote, super ministry, end quote, with all kinds of often contradictory responsibilities. And all of this is led by politicians who are not very experienced in running the government, the Social Democratic Coalition, 
has been in power for some time before. So the new department is being run by people who don't know what they're doing, basically. And they are being criticized for missing things, for being slow, for making outright mistakes. And it doesn't help that this super ministry is so large that they don't know what the, well, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. The big example that is in the news lately is the support to the public that was implemented due to the skyrocketing electricity prices. I think Mm -hmm. that has happened in other countries as well. In Sweden, they have decided that depending on where you live in the country, you get money back basically for to compensate that for you that you've paid very high electricity bills for the last year. So support is now being paid out to citizens as compensation, uh, which is, I guess, sort of fine. I don't mind. We got, a, I think we got uh, 600 euros the other day. Mm. That was nice. Mm-hmm. From a very yeah. egoistically, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good policy, but I, I, I took the money. Mm. But the thing is that the cost of producing electricity in Sweden hasn't really gone up because it's mostly hydro and it's nuclear power plants, and they are just churning on as before. So what is happening now is that the power companies, they are making huge profits on these high prices of electricity and it's on the taxpayer's expense. Because even if I got some money back now, deep inside, I know this is tax money. So I probably have paid that in taxes before. So it's just, I'm not really gaining on this. The ones who are gaining on this are the big power companies because they got the benefits of the high prices on, on electricity. This is not an unforeseen effect. It was actually foreseen by the EU, who issued directives to limit these unhealthy profits in in power companies. And Sweden will follow these directives because they have to. But back to the super ministry, they have been so ineffective and they don't know what they're doing, really. So they are not able to get the laws in place in time to stop these inflated profits in the power companies. And you can't really create laws that go retroactively. So the longer it delays, the more the power companies are just cashing in and cashing in and cashing in. And that wasn't really the idea. So point being, a lot of politics, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But the point being is that the new right-wing government in Sweden is most a lot of it is directed by misinformation by conspiracy theories and also they are now showing to be very very inefficient and ineffective and it's all a big mess <laughs> <laughs> sounds vaguely familiar <laughs> well at least it's it's not corrupt as in some places yeah. i don't think they they I would give them that benefit of the doubt and say it's, they're not doing this on purpose. They're just mm. shit at doing politics <laughs> or driving yeah. policies. All right. Yeah. Yeah, because Orban does that. So he made the the ministry's in interior. He made a super ministry out of it. Mm-hmm. And he dissolved the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education. And he reorganized it under the Ministry of Interior. Yeah. So basically degraded it to the level of state secretariat. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 not neither of them is. Uh, yeah. It's the same thing here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Speaking of which, <laughs> I think it's time for us to. F- I think it's time we find out who's been really wrong lately. Yes, and it's someone that Andras likes to talk about a lot <laughs> because um, <laughs> he might have been a winner before. He's definitely been mentioned on the podcast already today too. Viktor Orban. Um, <clears throat> problem is, it was so tangled that I didn't really understand what the problem was. <laughs> but I'm sure Andras will help. Will be able to help me. Yes. So basically, what you have to understand is that we have a healthcare system that is basically on the verge of collapse. Lots of people left the country who have training in healthcare, especially doctors. They leave the country, they work somewhere else. And as a result, they could not actually hold back enough people to provide a proper healthcare service. 
And people are struggling. People are massively overworked in the system. And even though now the payment for doctors, not other healthcare workers, but doctors, is catching up slowly with the Western European counterparts, the situation is still very dire and the equipment is not there and there are massive waiting lines like in some cases you have to wait for half a year to get a proper exam and that means that if it's a quickly progressing illness that you have then you basically don't have a chance of yeah. of surviving yeah. so healthcare workers are trying to have their voices mm-hmm. heard And when the government now started proposing that of the 300 on-call points that you can find all over Hungary, they would like to decrease the number of the on-call points, the on-call centers, to 102 from 300. Yeah, so two-thirds. So, no, one-third. They want to reduce it by two-thirds. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And the ideology behind it is that they want to make a a more more sensible system, want to build a more sensible system. But it's not the case. And people are already overworked. And this is why the Hungarian Chamber of Doctors, who's responsible for providing a proper care and making sure that from a professional point of view, their doctors are working at the highest possible level mm-hmm. and providing the highest possible service. So it's basically a, an overseeing body of the profession of doctors in Hungary. The problem is that they had a special meeting and at the special meeting they decided to recommend all the doctors yeah. not to sign those new contracts that would lead to this compulsory overworking of them yeah uh, of themselves mm-hmm. they said they would that would jeopardize the security of healthcare exactly the, just like a lot of steps by the government has yeah. <laughs> have have done so so the reaction of the government to that was that they're gonna chop away the responsibilities of the Hungarian Chamber of Doctors so ba- they basically want to get rid of the Hungarian Chamber of Doctors and form a new thing <laughs> that will be under their control. Because now they've found yet another thing in the country that is not under control and they cannot live with that. Yeah. So there are no professional consultations. There are there, there's, there's no listening to the Hungarian Chamber of Doctors, the professional body. It's all about politics. So, yeah, they're doing their jobs and for that they are threatened, basically. Yes. Yes. Awesome. So, yeah, I think, Andres, that made much more sense than the long article that I read, <laughs> because it was just like a, mm. I think, just to explain this to our listeners, it was just such a complex thing happening, and it went like to and fro and there and back, and I, w- I just felt like watching a tennis match, just reading like, oh, uh, oh, uh, oh, yeah, oh. <laughs> and yeah, that's why I much appreciate you summarizing that in your own words, because it, that makes a lot more sense now. So if if you if you want a simpler explanation the Hungarian government is trying to further cripple the healthcare system the Hungarian chamber of doctors expressed their concerns then the government decided to get rid of them yeah. do not listen and still go on with the changes without considering any of the professional aspects and then the Hungarian chamber of doctors decided to recommend their members to stay away from this yeah and now they want to get rid of them the hungarian government wants to get rid of the hungarian chamber of of doctors ridiculous and it has a skeptical aspect as well because if the hungarian chamber of doctors is dissolved the profession of physicians Mm -hmm. will not be overseen by a professional body anymore wow (laughs) yeah okay yeah, I think I should actually hand out the award now, <laughs> now that we Please actually do. understand um, <laughs> the issue. So, for putting gasoline in an already burning house and to then ignore recommendations by people who know better, Viktor Orban and his government receive this week's prize for being really wrong. Well yeah. deserved. Very well Thank deserved. <laughs> I wish it wasn't. Hmm. <laughs> Probably always is. Yeah. But thank you very much for that, Hanika. Thank you. And thank you. <laughs> that concludes a pretty long show. Mm. Uh, thanks for bearing with us. But before we go, we need a quote. 
Yes, and this week's quote is by a German physicist, mathematician and author, Georg Christoph Lichtenberg, who lived from 1742 to 1799. And there were so many cool quotes but um, I decided to stick with this one because it's short and sweet. But this won't be the last time that I'll quote him. <laughs> okay. I'll quote him again in the future because, yeah, a lot of cool quotes. But this one is, quote, The most dangerous of all falsehood is a slightly distorted truth, end quote. Mm. Very so good. True. Oh, it's not good, but it's very, very well said. <laughs> yeah, because... it, it fits so well with the whole yeah, disinformation. Because if there's truth <laughs> in it, then it's very it's harder to dispute it and uh, people yeah. go, oh that's true and that's true yeah but the total is bullshit. yeah if it sounds correct it's harder to be skeptical if i tell you like oh i can actually fly and the sky is green then you're like uh that's maybe a bit weird but if i tell you half truth then it's much harder for your brain to be like what no <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i i found this really good <laughs> right all right. So thank you very much for that. And that really concludes our show for this week. I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in and bearing with us. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe <clears throat> yeah, something that's also really... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> wakey, wakey. <laughs> no, I wasn't asleep. <laughs> Focusing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the 5th of Mar March. No, it marks. March. No. So the 5th of March. <laughs> Fuck me. Okay. Uh, there are, but the thing is that people. Uh, oh, I was going to do a segue. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I will shut up. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> that... hmm? <laughs> sorry, I didn't get that joke acoustically, but I'm sure it was very funny. <laughs>